0: Dear God, Lord, I thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to meet you in your word. I pray, God, that as I am up here today, that it would be your voice that speaks and not my own, that anything that is of me would fall away from remembrance, but that your voice would shine through. Uh, Teach us as your church today what it is that we need to hear, and may we have the courage to follow you as we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so today we are kicking off a new series that we're calling Doors in the Life of Faith. And I'm very excited about it, not only for what it is, but one, we have this incredible new stage decor to go with the series and a really cool graphic that I'm just stoked about. And as we've been exploring the life and the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, this is kind of coming from, I'm struck by how much our Lord loves metaphor. Jesus appreciates the power of a clear, tangible image. And a few weeks ago, we looked at an oil lamp, if you remember that. But for the next seven weeks, we're going to look at different sorts of doors. Jesus will say, strive to enter through the narrow door. He says, I am the door of the sheep. When you pray, shut the door. I have set before you an open door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is repeatedly drawn to this imagery. And it makes sense. Jesus can speak about a farmer sowing his seed. He can talk about a shepherd tending his sheep, a woman lighting a lamp. But it is not his native terrain. Remember, Jesus in his humanity was a contractor a man comfortable working with wood and stone. And as such, my ears perk up every time Jesus reaches for an architectural illustration because it's something that he knows intimately. So I know it sounds weird, but this is true. Doors have a profound and an outsized hold on the human psyche. It's hard to explain, but doors entrance us, and it seems that they always have. Did you know that in Scripture, before we ever hear of the construction of a single building, we hear talk of a door? You see, doors intrigue our imagination. Sure, you can tell me the technical definition. You can tell me that this is simply, let's see, a barrier to control. Let's see, technical definition of a door. Think brain. It's nothing more than a movable barrier to open and close an entryway. But my brain will look at that and scream and say, no, that is a magical portal to another world. Doors are also strangely beautiful. Hop onto Google or Instagram and uh, do a little image search for portraits of doors, or if you prefer, door I don't know if that's a word, but we can go for it. And I guarantee that the results will cause something to stir in your soul. I called a photographer friend this week to try to understand why. And he said it's the strong lines. Doors are very geometric, or they're supposed to be. And if they're not, they might even be even more captivating. Doors are visually interesting, and they often boast unusual designs. They're something that we interact with every day, but they come in a billion varieties. And each one tells a story. It tells its history. It reveals its culture. It also helps that from our earliest days, humans have been beautifying doors, Archaeologists tell us that the people of the biblical world tended to make their doors as attractive as possible. They decorated them, they wrote upon them. And I think it's because at the end of the day, doors possess powerful symbolism. One biblical scholar put it this way. He says, in the Hebrew Bible, the door separated an outer world of darkness and danger from an inner sanctum of hospitality and security. As such, the the threshold had become this very sacred space in the mind of a follower of God. Another biblical scholar writes this, doors and doorways are places of transition. We move through them to greet new people. We close doors and find quiet solitude. For the biblical writer, the doorway was often associated with entrance into areas of greater spiritual significance. There is this almost primal association of doors with religious boundaries. So on the outside is darkness and danger, and on the inside, a sanctum of hospitality and security. Outside malevolent forces threaten, on the inside one finds warmth and love and the welcome of a person, perhaps even God himself. And this squares with what is actually the first mention of a door in Scripture. In Genesis, the Lord speaks to Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, after he rejects Cain's sacrifice. And he says this, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Lying in wait, lurking just beyond the threshold, is this predatory presence, this kind of demonic embodiment of the sin that seeks to dominate Our lives and ultimately destroy us. And it's not until later in Genesis that the ancient author he gives us a glimpse of what's outside the door. It's not till later that he shows us what's inside the door. But with all this kind of preamble, let's dive in to Jesus' teaching in Luke 13 as he shows us our first door. So this is Luke 13, starting in verse 22. And we'll read uh, the first couple verses. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able Jesus is winding his way towards Jerusalem toward the cross and he's asked a question about salvation how many will be saved How many will make it and find a future in your new world? How many will avoid the dreadful judgment of God when he comes to put the world to rights, to restore justice, to make everything good and beautiful and true once again? Jesus doesn't answer, but he gives us an admonition about a door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. The Greek here is interesting. It's Jesus is issuing a command. He's pleading with the man who asked the question and with us all. He says, "Strive and strain, and you all please keep on striving and straining to enter through the narrow door." I don't think he's implying that the kind of the opening is constricted and tight. He's not saying, "Hey, You can only squeeze through if you suck in your gut and if you remember to skip dessert last night. I don't think it's that. I think he's warning us that this is not a door that you will wander through by accident as you drift along in life. It will require intentionality and exertion and commitment to traverse that door. Indeed, entering through the narrow door will involve altering the very course of your life. It will mean making this your sole aim. Indeed, taking this road will oblige you to forsake every other trail and detour in order to enter through the narrow door. I find Jesus' imagery cryptic. We're left so far with so many more questions than answers. But Jesus gives clarity on one point. Why will many seek to enter but be not able to be unable to do so? Is it because they don't know the way? Is it because they're not invited? Is it because they're not qualified to enter? No. It's because this wide open door will one day be shut. And once the door is shut, even those who wish to enter will no longer have the opportunity to do so. Jesus goes on in verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I don't know where you come from. And the people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. To understand this, allow me to share with you a piece of cultural context. But before I do, I have a question. Raise your hand if you leave your front door of your home open during the day. Not unlocked, but open. Raise your hand if you leave your front door open, like open wide. Not very many of you. Why? Why don't you leave your front door open? Don't have a screen door, so no, you don't want the flies to come in. Other reasons why you don't leave your door open? It's insecure. Someone might come in and steal your stuff. And it's cold. Okay. The weather comes in. Any other reasons why you, won't, you don't leave your door open? Yeah. Yeah, you, you can't keep your animals in or keep other animals out. Yeah, there's a security piece here. Keeping your family safe. Well, our cultural default is a shut garage door and a locked front door. But that was not so in the ancient world. In a typical village, the door of a home remained open all day. It was this visible invitation to sociability, right? Come on in. Let's visit and talk. Let's break bread and commune. I'm available and I will stop whatever I'm doing in order to do so. It was only at sunset, when darkness fell, that the door was closed and barred. During the day, the open door was a symbol of the host's gracious hospitality. And at night, it transformed into this comforting sign of security for those within. Therefore, it's a little rich that the guys in Jesus' parable challenge the homeowner's warm-heartedness. I imagine the homeowner saying, my guys, I had the door thrown open to you all day long and you refused to come in. My welcome was broad, but you spurned it as you chased your own agendas and ambitions. You were distracted by your own interests. You were pursuing your own connections. Yet now in the dark of night, when evil and mischief reign, you pound on my door and you call me cold. And uncaring. You demand I put the safety and well being of all within my home at risk because you refused to come when it was light. Remember the practical realities at play. There's no street lights or porch lights, no peepholes or ring cameras in the ancient world. There was nothing to reveal in the dark of night what was actually standing outside your door. Was that a neighbor? Or was that a roving band of marauders who are here to rape, pillage, and destroy? Yet our homeowner was a beacon of hospitality and generosity in his community. Certainly, even at midnight, he would open the door to a friend or neighbor. But he does not recognize the voices of these men. They are unfamiliar to him. They say, no, we ate in your presence and you taught in our general vicinity. And he says, I don't actually know you. If you'd received my hospitality or I yours, I would know you. But you're a stranger to me. I won't open the door. Strive and keep on striving to enter through the narrow door for it will shut, and those outside when it does will no longer have the opportunity to enter. You still may be puzzled by Jesus' illustration. There's much left unexplained, but I'd contend that the key to understanding this narrow door is actually another door. We'll see this over and over again in this series. It takes a door to interpret a door. And the door we need today is in Genesis. The first literal door described in Scripture, the door of Noah's Ark. So we're going back to Genesis chapter 6. Let me read you a portion of this narrative. Genesis 6, starting in verse 11. Self-centeredness, lust, and greed had vandalized God's beautiful creation. Society had grown warped and twisted, and the earth itself was tainted. We hear of a world filled to the brim with violence, injustice, and want. And our good and holy God, he mourns the corruption he sees. He mourns the way that his heart, his way, his character has been obscured in the world. He mourns the devastations that the forces of evil, sin, and death have wrought. And unwilling to leave us in this terrible state, wallowing in the muck of our own debauchery, he vows to unmake the world. To unmake it so that he might make it new once again. To wipe away injustice so that he might... See justice restored. He'll put an end to all flesh so that life and flourishing, a future and a hope might be preserved for all flesh. A flood is coming, but he sets before humanity an open, albeit a narrow, door. Verse 14 Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. So God commissions the construction of an enormous boat with incredible capacity. The ark is to have many rooms as preparations are made for occupants and guests. And I'm sort of tickled by the imagery. I, I love that there's three decks. It reminds me of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's only one solitary door. Verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male, And female. Outside the door is darkness and danger and watery judgment. Within one finds hospitality and security and salvation. To enter through the door is to pass from death to life. To enter through the door is also to enter into a covenant, a committed relationship with the God of the universe. And the offer is unconditional. It's made to all flesh. In fact, all life is beckoned through the door. Male and female, every culture and tribe, every, every species. The door is narrow in that it's singular and exclusive. One must walk through it and no other. Yet an elephant can negotiate the door jam. No obstacles bar one's path except the obstacle of our own pride. For one will not wander through this door. It must be sought. And seeking this door involves a confession of our need and an acceptance of and a putting one's trust in the way of salvation that God has provided. And we must recall that the ark with its singular door, seemed to be utter foolishness to Noah's contemporaries. For some, this whole notion of it was totally incomprehensible. Remember, according to the Genesis narrative, rain has yet to fall upon the earth. Others ridicule a man who with no prior experience builds this massive ship so far from the ocean. You see, one would not accidentally drift into this ark. The one who entered would strive to do so. It would be an act of exertion and will, a commitment of faith. And well, they did, because the door would not be open forever. And our narrative continues in Genesis seven eleven. In the 600th year of Noah's life, In the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the window of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and on the very same day Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And the Lord shut him in. This detail is unique among all the ancient flood narratives. And the Lord shut him in. Only the Bible speaks of God shutting the door. The author wants to make clear that it's not by human skill, but by a divine will and power, that the ark was made secure and salvation was achieved. The master of the house has risen and shut the door. And it's glorious news to those who've entered and terrible news to those left outside. And I appreciate that the author of Genesis doesn't show us the aftermath. Those pounding on the door, accusing God of callousness as the rain starts to fall. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. The Lord has prepared a way of salvation, a way for us to be sheltered from danger, darkness, and wrath. A way to wash away our sins and restore righteousness. A way to secure for us life everlasting and a door stands open before us. His name is Jesus, the one door, and he invites us forward with open arms. And know, too, that our Lord is patient. The Apostle Peter writes in his first letter to the church, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few Only a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. I hear the Lord's heartbreak as I hear it in Jesus' voice in Luke. God's not hiding his way of salvation. He has not left humanity ignorant of what was to come. It says, Peter will go on to say, Noah was appointed as a herald of righteousness. And God also sent prophets In that day, like Enoch, to announce and to bear witness, Jude records Enoch's message. He says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness, which they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What was true in the days of Noah is true in our day as well. They asked Jesus, will those who are saved be few? And you could almost hear that catch in his voice. I pray not. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for I tell you, many will seek to enter after it's too late and will not be able to. I'm not here to scare you. I pray that love, not fear, beckons you into Jesus' open arms. But the reality is that the Lord sees how messed up our world is. He sees the devastations that human selfishness and injustice are wrecking even now. And he will not stand idly by as evil and death ravage. He refuses to leave us in the muck of our own making to leave us tainted by corruption and utterly broken. He came to heal the world, to break the power of evil, sin, and death, and to make all things new, even us. Jesus, through His death on a cross, And by means of his resurrection from the grave, he made a way for us to be brought safely through those waters of judgment and renewal. We enter the narrow door and we find forgiveness and life and peace. We find communion with God himself. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. You might say, hey, it's been 2,000 years. Your shtick is getting tired. Generations have come and generations have gone. Kingdoms have risen up. They've declined. They've fallen. They've disappeared. And still, this promised hope and change has not come. Why should I strive and strain to embrace Jesus and his offer of rescue. And again, we're going to turn to the apostle Peter. He answers this directly in his final letter to the church, and I just want his words to wash over you. He says this, "Beloved, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And he goes on. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And this, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. I would simply say, do not spurn the Lord's patience or spit at grace. Jesus desires that none would perish But on that glorious and terrible day, our choices will be honored and the door will be shut, sealing our fates. And for those who have received Jesus' loving hospitality, it will be the fulfillment of a promise long waited for. But for those who refuse, I shudder. Jesus refuses to say only a few will be saved. Instead, he encourages us all to come. Before us stands a narrow door. Jesus, our Savior. The one who purchased for us life, forgiveness, and peace. And in light of this reality, I have three questions for you. Number one, where are you? Where are you in relation to Jesus? Do you strive and continue to strive to enter through the narrow door? To trust him, to commune with him, to know him? Are you peering from afar, spectating and investigating, but never drawing near? Perhaps you're like those in Jesus' parable, claiming a closer connection than is true. Jesus, you remember that one time back at camp in high school where we ate in your presence and and you taught and spoke to us? That was something, right? Way back when? I think Jesus would say, where are you? I've been looking for you. Come in and let us know one another. Enter through the narrow door. Second question, who told you that? As we approach the narrow door, we come with our preconceived ideas. And I imagine Jesus asking us, who are you listening to besides me? Who told you my door is closed to you, maybe? Who told you that there's no urgency, no stakes, that the same future awaits us all? Who deceived you and said that many doors can lead to a future life of flourishing to whom are you running to for truth? Who have you authorized to be for you the source of wisdom? Come to me, hear my words, and live. Strive to enter through the narrow door. The last question is this. What have you done? You're like me, I imagine. You've li- we've lived much of our lives outside the door. In that place where sin and selfishness, anger, lust, and greed seek to dominate and control us. And like Cain, we were unable or unwilling to rule over those destructive impulses. And we've contributed to a world filled with pain, ugliness, and hardship. Things that the Lord needs to set right. But in this moment of our contrition and need, Jesus beckons us through the narrow door. He says in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In him is the restoration of life, the washing away of guilt and shame, the renewal of purpose for all who will meet Jesus, at the place of grace. Enter through the narrow door and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, it's a heavy word that you give to us. And we're a people that like light and fluffy answers. But God, you know what we need. And God, we are so grateful that you don't leave us in the mess of our own making, but you've come to break the power of evil, sin, and death and make all things new. And that should be bad news for us because we are part of the problem. But there is grace, unexpected, undeserved, Unlooked for. And you beckon us to come. We have to surrender all other ways. We have to acknowledge our need. We have to trust you. But it is real. It is life, forgiveness, peace. Give us the courage to walk through the narrow door. And it sounds, Lord, that it's not a one-time walk, but it's a continual communion with you. A continual trusting you and holding to you and claiming your grace is sufficient for us. Give us the courage To say yes. The courage to look foolish in the eyes of our friends and neighbors. Give us the courage to draw near if we've been in your vicinity our whole lives, but never approaching. May we actually put our trust and our hope and our lives in your hands and enter in from the realm of darkness into the realm of your glorious light. Lord, if there's anyone here today that has not said yes to you, God, may they walk today through the narrow door. May they right now in their quietness of their hearts put their trust in you, confessing their sins and their need and clinging to your grace. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.